When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. I did the only thing I could do to protect myself. I prayed. I didn't really suspect anything about him. We dated for a few weeks before the night that I found out the truth about him. We just went on with our trip, but we never played vampire again without some mention of that night. From Disturbed Media, join your host, Chad, for true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events. This is Disturbed. Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. At the top of the show, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who's been sharing and reviewing the podcast. We've been growing a ton, and it's all thanks to you guys for sharing and recommending us. And it's really been showing up in a big way with our growth, so a huge thanks to everyone for doing that. This show has grown from scratch, mostly by word of mouth, and reached all corners of the world. You guys made that happen. So thank you so much. Now let's get into it. We open the show with an email submission from Pauline, and we experience the evil entity. Bringing this experience to life is Nicole Doolin. In 2001, my family moved to the coast because my father had just gotten a job in the area. Because it was a bit of an urgent move, and the amount of rental properties that were available immediately were very few, we had to move into a three-bedroom house that needed some work. It was meant to be a temporary home until we found something more suitable. We just needed to go to school and work in the meantime. The previous tenants weren't the tidiest of people, so we spent days cleaning while already living in the house. I remember my mother commenting that the house just didn't want to be clean. We painted the walls, but stains would still appear, regardless of how many coats we applied. We eventually had to carry on with our lives. It was only meant to be a temporary situation after all. Being a teenager and a middle child, I spent quite some time by myself in my room. I would listen to music at night while lying on my bed, relaxing before I get tired enough to fall asleep. At one point, something strange started happening. I would be lying on my bed with my eyes closed and feel the bed sink next to my feet, as if someone was sitting down. I assumed it was my old cat jumping up on my bed, but when I looked to see where he was so I could pet him, he wasn't there. I shrugged it off as nothing at the time. I thought that maybe I was just drifting off into sleep. But it happened again. 
and again, and I realized it was never my cat. In fact, I realized that my cat didn't ever come into my room. None of our cats did. I started getting slightly concerned after a while. I mentioned it to my mother, thinking to myself that it sounded like nothing, a mere trick of the mind. I still felt uneasy, though. It was like there was something wrong, something I couldn't prove or even see, a nagging sense that I wasn't alone in my room. I stopped sleeping with my curtains drawn. They were always open. I needed the natural light coming from outside to feel safe enough to sleep. My concerns were confirmed one night that I still remember clearly to this day. Almost 20 years later, I woke up suddenly terrified. I had an intense fear unlike anything I had ever experienced before or even since. I couldn't move. There was a tree outside my room casting shadows on my cupboard, which was right in front of my bed. I knew there was something bad right there in front of me, among those shadows. I could feel it, like an overwhelming presence filling the space in front of me. An evil, threatening presence. I saw that one of the shadows on my cupboard was moving. This shadow was darker and moved with intention. As soon as I spotted it, I knew that that was the source of my fear. I did the only thing I could do to protect myself. I prayed. After what felt like an eternity trapped, I was able to move. Still terrified, too terrified to go past my cupboard to the door right next to it. I hid under my blanket. Seventeen years old and hiding under a blanket like the boogeyman was under my bed. I fell asleep in the early hours of the morning as daylight started coming in through my windows. I know what sleep paralysis is, and I am convinced this wasn't it. The fear I felt that night as I hid in my bed, feeling like I am not alone in my room, is something I will never forget. A month or two after the incident, my parents found a better place. I was scared of my room until we moved. I always slept with my head under the covers and made sure enough light was coming into the room after we moved, it was like my family finally felt safe enough to speak about the darkness we all knew was in that house. My brother told us about a dark figure he saw moving through the corridor area to the kitchen. My father said he saw a dark shape in the corridor near my room, but it was what my mother told me after we moved that shook me the most. She told me that when a family friend and his wife visited us and stayed in my room, he told my mother the following day that there was something evil in there. He was known for sensing the supernatural and seemed quite spooked to my mother as he was telling her this. I could see that when she was telling me about this that she was spooked as well. When I asked her what he said exactly, as I was recollecting my memories to tell this story, she said that he just said he didn't want to elaborate. Because if he did, we would never go into that room again. Well, damn, that's not much better, I thought. The family friend has since then passed away without ever elaborating on what exactly he sensed in that house. I still am suspicious of every house I move into, now with my own family, making sure to burn sage every so often. I don't ever want to share a house with evil again. Want to listen to Disturbed ad-free? 
Of course you do. Go to disturbedpodcast.com slash support to get your access today. Next up is our title story coming to us via email submission from Derek. And we learn how he was nearly a cult sacrifice. Bringing this experience to life is Tom Aglio. Back in 2016, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment in a town located in a Midwestern state. At the time, I was 28 years old and would visit the Twin Cities at least once a year. A very close friend of mine, Tim, used to regularly visit me at my one-bedroom apartment. We would talk about life and what we were learning in church. I used my living room as a space for small group Bible studies, which I led at least once a week. One evening, as I was brewing some tea and getting ready to start some homework, I received a call from Tim. He had decided to move back to his hometown. Tim's move was the major reason why I started taking two one-week vacations from work a year. All was well during my first visit. We were driving around and listening to music and getting late-night dinners, just like we used to do when he lived in my hometown. My second visit, well, was not as pleasant. For my second visit, I decided to stay with another friend of mine. While she was working at a nearby gas station, I would take one of the buses in Minneapolis to the Mall of America or around the area to explore. I spent a lot of time reconnecting with other friends who had decided to move to Minneapolis. Naturally, one of those friends was Tim. When he picked me up from my friend's apartment on a Thursday morning, I could sense something was wrong. He used to be rather muscular, and he ate very well. When I looked in his face, I was taken aback. His face was white, and he had looked frail and weak. I did not think much of what was going on. We had decided to check out some obscure Mexican restaurant and ordered lunch. He picked at his food while I enjoyed my beef enchiladas and listened to him as he shared about his life. He mentioned that he no longer lived with his family, but had decided to take residence at a missionary's house. After lunch, I started to get upset. He barely ate, and I was genuinely concerned. I'm not the kind of person to discuss deep personal issues in public, so I confronted him about my concerns. He smiled and said that he was eating, but had to be careful with the food he ate, as well as the amount of food he ate. I did not think much of it at the time. I was also doing the same thing. I figured that he was on some diet and wanted to reduce body fat, but it did not explain why he was losing his strength. I convinced him to pull up to a grocery store, and I bought him some protein bars, some of his favorite snacks, and some multivitamins. After the excursion to the store, he asked if I wanted to check out the house he lived in. He explained to me that his landlords were a missionary and his wife, and that he lived with four other guys. I wanted to check out his new home, so I said that I would check out the house. We pulled up to the house. It was a beautiful old Victorian, with what looked like three floors. It was located near a river and a small forest. It was not really out of the way from Minneapolis. I could see the downtown area from the bridge. However, the beautiful exterior of the house did not fit with the interior of the house. When I walked in, I could feel something in the air. Something was not right, and I could not place my finger on what was wrong. I sat down at this old wooden table that stretched the majority of the dining room, while Tim put his food in his bedroom. I thought that was rather odd. I figured he would store the food in the kitchen cupboards. As I'm taking in the interior of the dining room and kitchen area, someone came from upstairs and walked towards the kitchen. The guy was about five feet six, had no muscle, and also looked very skinny and pale, much like Tim. Tim said that this was Greg, and he was one of the guys that lived with him. Greg did not smile, and he took a seat at the table with me. He did not say much, and as I asked him general questions, he answered me with one-word responses. He looked over at Tim, said I'm getting hungry, and proceeded to the kitchen to heat up some soup. 
I was getting more creeped out by the minute, but since I did not drive, I felt stuck at the house. Greg brought his bowl into the dining room and started eating his soup. It smelled and looked like pea and ham soup, which personally I find disgusting. He took about four small bites and said something that amped up my there's something screwy going on here feeling I was experiencing. Greg said something along the lines of how he just now ate too much soup. I laughed and Greg and Tim scolded me for laughing. Greg and Tim went upstairs to the second floor of the house. Tim said they were coming back downstairs and that there was no need to come upstairs. In fact, he had told me to stay away from the upstairs area. Guests were not allowed. It was then just me downstairs, alone, sitting at the table. As I was waiting, I heard somebody come into the house. This burly man and this really skinny woman entered into the dining room. The man identified himself as Mark, the missionary landlord. He seemed really nice and friendly and so did his wife Lucy. She briefly smiled and said how nice it was for Tim to bring friends over and asked me why I had never come over before. I explained that I was visiting because I was on vacation. I asked her how she knew that I was Tim's friend. She smiled and looked at her husband. I think it's time we go upstairs and talk with the guys, don't you think? Mark said to his wife. Yes, we really need to, Lucy said grimly. Once again, I am alone at the table for several minutes. Another guy walks into the dining room. He had on an army outfit, but what struck me was that this guy was also really skinny and very pale. I couldn't shake that all of these men who lived here, minus the landlord, had the same body type and the same skin tone. I asked him about his time in the army. He said, I'm not allowed to talk about that here. I need to go upstairs. I fully intended on running out of that house because things were too creepy. However, my body went into freeze mode. I started panicking and freaking out. I knew I needed to go, but I could not get my feet to move. Just as I was able to start moving, everyone upstairs started coming downstairs. We know you are a sinner and you need to repent, Mark said really forcefully. The army guy and Greg shoved me down at the table. I could not explain how they felt so strong but looked so frail and weak. As they were doing this, Mark was saying, you have demons attached to you and I can't allow your demons to influence these young children. You need to pay. As this was going on, Tim was standing in the corner, speaking in a language I had never heard before. As they were forcing me down, I had cut my hand on their table. I screamed to the army guy, get me a band-aid, can't you see I'm gushing blood? Mark shoved the army guy out of the way. Don't you get it? Your blood must leave, for this is a sign that the demons are fleeing, we need more blood. I don't know what kicked in, but I was able to flee from that house. I had come back home after several more days in the Twin Cities. There were still other things I wanted to do there, and I was not about to let this horrific incident screw up my visit. I made plans to hang out with a few other buddies of mine and really wanted to check out some other places in Minneapolis. I finally came home on a Saturday and was pretty exhausted from the trip back home. I took a long nap and woke up so I could unpack and get some things done around the apartment. After about an hour, I decided to go outside and have a smoke. It was about midnight when I stepped outside. As I was finishing my cigarette, I heard someone a few feet from me. I saw what looked like a burly man stand on the sidewalk staring at me. It looked just like Mark. I threw the cigarette down and busted into my apartment, locking the door. I turned off all my lights and remained silent. Nobody knocked or anything. After that, I had other strange things happen. My Bible would go missing along with college textbooks. I found crosses hanging upside down in the apartment. I finally got the courage to call up my pastor and had him do a cleanse in the apartment after I had noticed three long cuts on both my arms. That was the last straw. After that cleanse, nothing strange ever happened. About a month later, I received a call from an unknown number. I never answer my phone when I see unknown numbers, so I let it go to voicemail. The message that was recorded told me what I already knew and even more than I imagined. Tim had joined a cult and the leader participated in the dark arts. 
They'd taken some of my blood and offered it up to a demon after I bolted out. That explained why they did not go chasing after me. They had what they needed. How this person got this information remains a mystery, but I was grateful that I had my questions answered. I knew there was another person that lived there. Maybe it was him that ratted out the cult. I haven't talked to Tim since then, and I hope never to run into him or the cult ever again. Do you have your own terrifying encounter? Did something unexplained happen to you? Let us know and get featured on the podcast. Email mystory@disturbedpodcast.com. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows now back to the horror disturbed podcast with your host chad in our next experience we check in with reddit user aria bird and we're reminded that people always have a past Bringing this experience to life is Tanya Eby. I grew up in a small town in Alabama. A little bit after I graduated high school when I was 18, I started dating this guy in his early 20s from a nearby city. He was a very handsome, tall, muscular male that we'll call Sean for this story. He told me on our first date that he used to be a part of a very well-known gang in the United States. Sean explained 
that he'd only been a part of this gang in his younger years because he'd grown up in a bad area and hadn't really had any other options. He also did have proof of being in said gang, including being aware of gang signs associated with said gang and having tattoos associated with that gang, which I did Google to see if the tattoos and gang signs were in fact associated with said gang, since I know there are some people who like to lie about being ex-gang members and the like for some reason to seem cool. Sean didn't seem like the type to lie about that also. I gave Sean the benefit of the doubt because he didn't really give me any bad vibes. I remember he was always a gentleman to me and treated me very well. So, of course, I didn't really suspect anything about him. We dated for a few weeks before the night that I found out the truth about him. I was staying over at Sean's apartment one night and everything was seeming pretty normal. This was the first time I'd ever stayed the night at his apartment so I do tend to be a bit cautious. So regardless of his background, it wouldn't have mattered. I just don't really like staying over at people's homes until I get to know them a bit more, and I do have an at least three-date rule. I'd been too busy before that to really stay over at his place. So that night when I was staying over, Sean's best friend was visiting for a bit, and that's when the red flags started to show up. It did seem weird to have a friend over, when the girl you are seeing is staying over for the first time. And it was revealed to me in private that Sean's friend was another ex-gang member from a well-known gang that is the enemy to the gang Sean had been part of. Of course, I can accept people all have their backstories, but it was definitely just a weird thing to suddenly tell me out of the blue. Additionally, Sean had not even told me his friend would be at the apartment that day in the first place. An additional note... Sean's friend did corroborate that he and Sean were both ex-gang members. Then, after Sean's friend had left, we were hanging out in his room, and this guy had a literal arsenal in his room. I'm not exaggerating when I say he had enough weaponry to arm a small militia. This included things like grenades, bulletproof vests, and an AK-47, or gun similar to it, to name a few of the weapons he had in his room. Needless to say... That was the second red flag of the day. That night, we were in bed together, and I can't remember what led him into revealing to me what he said in our conversation. He confessed to me that he was in fact still a part of the gang he had told me he had said he was out of now. So, of course, I was immediately giving him this look like, I'm sorry, what? Then he proceeded to go on and tell me that he actually was a hitman for the gang. And while he hadn't been active as a hitman as of late, he would still accept hits if they were given to him. The entire time he said this, he just looked me dead in the eyes with a most deadpan casual look, no feeling in his eyes, and spoke like he was talking about the weather. It was extremely creepy, and I knew right then that this guy was a straight-up sociopath. I don't doubt that he was lying. I've met people who try to get clout by lying about things like this, and he was definitely not one of those types. I did stay the rest of the night, and then left the next morning and never talked to him again. I was definitely not going to keep on dating someone like that. There's not really anything to the story after that. He never really tried to contact me after that. I'm sure some people will probably wonder why I didn't just leave right after he told me he was a hitman. I didn't think it was a good idea to react strongly and immediately storm out of the apartment. I also didn't actually feel like he was a danger to me personally. But he definitely had the vibe of someone who had killed people. 
The reason why I recognize that kind of vibe is another story. He was always very polite to me, but regardless, there was no way I was going to keep dating him no matter how hot he was. Are you listening alone? Rather brave of you. And finally, we hear from Reddit user here for LMN, and we listen in about the dark house in the woods. Bringing this experience to life is Sarah Thomas. I've had a few scary encounters in my life. Not sure if that means that I'm old or just a creep magnet. (laughs) But this one still creeps me out. In the early 80s, when I was eight, my family was visiting my uncle who lived in Backwoods, Missouri. He lived on a lot of land that the only other people who really even lived on the street were relatives. So no one else ever just happened to be out there. This meant no one ever locked their doors because random family members were always coming by for this or that. One night while we were there, my parents and aunt and uncle decided to go to a nearby town to go bowling because bowling. My brothers who were 11 and 12, my female cousins six and 14, and I stayed home. It was still daylight when the adults left, but it started raining pretty hard and got dark quickly. We used to play this game that was essentially hide and seek in the dark house, but we cleverly (laughs) called it vampire. There was a thin little mattress on the living room floor that some of the kids would sleep on at night. So the person who was it would lie on the mattress and fold it over themselves like a coffin and count down to midnight. When they got to midnight, they went looking for you. Again, all of the lights are off and you tried to make it back to the coffin before you got caught. Because the house was in the country, it was pitch black at night. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. What this meant for the game was that, one, you couldn't tell where the vampire was looking, so you just had to make a break for it. And two, if you were extremely lazy, and I'm sure by now you can guess which one of us met those standards, You could hide in the living room with the coffin and get to base quickly. Ben, my 11-year-old brother, was it and was doing the normal countdown. I was hiding maybe six feet from him. As he's counting, there's a flash of lightning. I don't know if I was already looking at the living room window or if the lightning made me look, but with the backlight of the lightning, I see a man with his face against the window. He had his hands on each side of his face as if he's trying to peer in and looks exactly like the stereotypical creepster. Heavy set, scraggly beard, etc. I could feel every hair on my body standing on end. Immediately, I began trying to convince myself that I didn't see what I saw. But then Ben sternly whispered, If anyone is hiding in here, stay still. I sort of croaked out and, I'm here, right as there was another flash of lightning. 
Creepster was still there, but was no longer trying to look in the window. Instead, he was now looking toward the front door. Ben and I immediately knew what was coming next. From where he was standing, Creepster was probably only five feet from the front door. Ben was the same distance, but there was a couch between him and the door. Ben leapt over the couch and locked the door right as Creepster started trying the handle. At this point, I guess Ben decided that it was best to let Creepster know that people were home and that we knew he was there because he flipped on the porch light and then started turning on the lights in the house. This is going to sound weird, but I was too terrified to panic. Having said that, I was relying completely on Ben to know and tell me what to do. He told me to go lock the other doors and was yelling for everyone else to come out and to lock all of the windows. Honestly, the next few minutes are hazy in my mind. I remember everything up until this point extremely clearly. Then I remember the end very clearly, but I'm less clear about the middle. I know that I locked the side door and then the sliding glass door on the back of the house. When we've talked about it over the years, some people remember us seeing him out the back door as well. I don't think I remember that. What I clearly recall is locking the sliding glass door and standing there frozen and hearing Ben in a very calm but firm voice say, close the curtain. Listen to me, okay? Close the curtain. So I did. Ben can't remember that part and I just remember my fear and Ben's voice. So I'm not sure if I saw Creepster in the backyard or not. We tried to call the police, but my aunt and uncle had a stupid party line and it wouldn't work whether from the storm or from a neighbor leaving it off the hook or whatever. For the record, they are the only people I've ever known with a party line, so this wasn't normal to me either. But for those of you who don't know what it is, in really rural areas, multiple people on the street would actually share a phone line. It would have different rings for different households, but you could pick up the phone and listen to your neighbor's conversation. We also tried to summon help on my uncle's CB radio, but couldn't reach anyone. My uncle was a hunter, so he had a gun rack full of rifles in his room, but my older cousin was on an out-of-town hunting trip and took them with him. All we could find was a BB gun that looked like a real rifle. I vividly remember Ben putting me on phone duty and Scott, my older brother, on CB duty while he stood watch at the little square window on the front door with the BB gun. Maybe 30 minutes later, Ben said, He's back! He's coming up the driveway! The rest of us froze in fear, but Ben opened the front door and stepped out on the porch, pointed the gun, and said, Get out of here right now! Then we hear our cousin Kyle, who lived down the road a bit, say, You know that's a BB gun, right? Even though Kyle was only 15, I remember that we felt like we had been saved when he showed up. Kyle seemed really skeptical of our story, like we were playing a trick on him, even though we had no idea that he was coming. But he stayed with us until our parents came home. Honestly, I don't remember if we even told our parents what happened when they got home. There was definitely no police involvement, though. We just went on with our trip. 
But we never played vampire again without some mention of that night. Follow our social channels on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod. If you'd like to contribute your story or experience to Disturbed, you have a few options. For consideration to have your story told by one of our storytellers, email us at mystory@disturbedpodcast.com or fill out the online submission form at disturbedpodcast.com slash submit. You can also leave us a text or voicemail on our hotline, 701-354-3667. Share your story or just let us know what you think of the show. Voicemails have a three-minute time limit, so if you get cut off, just call back. Disturbed is an independent production funded through advertising and listener support. Thanks to those who share the show with friends and leave positive reviews. These things help new listeners find us. Follow or subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to hear these episodes without the ads, you can get early access to our premium ad-free feed, as well as monthly bonus episodes. Visit disturbedpodcast.com support to learn more. And a shout out to all of our newest supporters, Melanie Feltz, Jessica Castro, Vela Dia, and Corey Simpson. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio and Co.ag. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.